0: This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. We're talking today, continuing our conversation in this month of November, uh, talking about our connection to the saints, and in a particular way, that statement we have in the creed, I believe in the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And we're talking today about that with uh, Dr. Leonard DeLorenzo, uh, one of my favorite guests. This is your seventh time here on the show. It's always a pleasure to have
1: you. Is it uh, seven? That's it is, this
0: is the, the, wow. the first one was also on this topic, uh, but you were, it was on your book, The Work of Love, right. the Theological Reconstruction of the Communion of Saints, which is a little bit more academic. Uh, then the second one I love is the uh, Does Santa Subvert the Sacred Story? Uh, You can go catch that over in the archives over at outsidethewalls.com. But today we're talking about this new book from Ave Maria Press. It's part of the Engaging Catholicism series, which is a partnership between Ave Maria Press and the McGrath Institute for Church Life, where Dr. DeLorenzo is the director of undergraduate studies there at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, The book here is called Our Faithful Departed, Where They Are and Why It Matters. It's available again on Ave Maria Press. Dr. DeLorenzo, thanks for being back.
1: Oh, thank you for having me, T.L. It's good to be here.
0: So one of the things that you do in this book very well, first of all, it's a very accessible, popular level book. So if you've kind of wrestled with with heavier books before and really want to grasp an understanding of what it means to believe in the communion of saints, this is a great place to start. One of the things, Dr. De Lorenzo, that you mentioned in your first book, The Work of Love, available on Notre Dame Press, uh, you said that when the church started out, the com- communion of saints was a practice without a doctrine. Mm. And somewhere along the lines, it's transitioned and become largely, in many places, a doctrine without a practice Mm. and this desire to reconnect our practice to those doctrines and beliefs of the church. And you do that in this new book in a really singular way by starting off with the question, before we can have a really solid understanding of what it means to be a part of the communion of saints and believe in the communion of saints, we first have to have a really solid understanding of what it means for us to be a human person. And you've spent the first chapter talking about that body-soul union that is so difficult for us to wrap our heads
1: around. Our Christian understanding of what it means to be a human person uh, actually rooted in our heritage from uh, Judaism. Really, I think we can find ground zero, you know, sort of the base of biblical anthropology there in Genesis uh, chapter two, verse seven, where it says that in the creation of the human being, the Lord God, took the earth stuff and fashioned it into a body, donated, gave his own breath uh, to fill what he has shaped. And then the living human being became this living union. And what we ought to see there is that the human being is not a composite, just the addition of this thing and this other thing. But in fact, the living human being is only ever the union in this case of body and soul. And this, I think, is the most fundamental, most basic part of what we might call biblical anthropology, that we as human beings are uh, a living union. Death, then, is the the break of that union. And that union is also the sort of principle, I would say, of the communion of the church, the communion of saints. And this, of course, is all forged together, held together in the person of Christ, so as you led up to, to introducing this topic here, TL, you were talking about the community of saints as a, a doctrine uh, or a practice at first without the doctrine, then maybe in uh, our latter days, more of the doctrine without all of the practice involved. I wanted to start this book with this kind of reclaiming of a Christian anthropology in the person of Christ as a way of understanding the Christian notion of death, mm-hmm. which is a a really total tragedy. Like, we as Christians don't soft pedal death. Like, death is utterly tragic. In a way, it's humiliating. All that we have put into our lives is pulled apart. It is the disunion of that which is meant to be together. But then the principle of the new communion, the communion in Christ, comes from Him who takes on even that condition of the breaking of the union of the human being. He enters into our death. So, i maybe just kind of jumping into a number of things here that are going on at the beginning, but I try to, as you know, I try to lay this out to kind of rebuild for us, you could say, like a grammar or an imagination of this basic biblical anthropology, then to recognize in the midst of doing that what it is that Christ himself assumes in taking on our humanity, the depth to which the Son of God goes, so that we can also begin to grasp again and apprehend the fullness of the gift that he gives us in his resurrection.
0: One of the things you do here is you share in a very vulnerable way your own story and the stories of others who have experienced that loss. And so mm. I think so often as we pick up books along these lines uh, that are trying to convey to us doctrine, it seems so removed uh, and and academic and heady, right? We're trying to put across principles uh, to to have this proper belief, this orthodoxy. But as you approach this orthodoxy, you do it in such a way that says, here is the lived experience. Let me share almost this parable of my life and experience and the lives and experience of others so Mm -hmm. that you can better grasp what it means uh, for this, this union to be taking place.
1: No, and that's exactly what we are hoping to do with this whole series on Engaging Catholicism, which is to show to reveal and really present new pathways of this reunion of theology and spirituality of what it is that we profess the doctrines of our faith and what it is that we practice or might come to practice more deeply so i'm really glad that that came through and you're mm-hmm. at least in your reading of this but you know specifically to your point like for example at the at the beginning of chapter 1 I share a story that was shared with me. I did a a number of different interviews and conversations with people who uh, were mourning their beloved dead, different kinds of experiences of their senses of separation, of longing, of consolation. Um, I recorded all of those or a number of those conversations, even for our own podcast. But at the beginning of chapter one, I share uh, a bit of the story of a former student of mine, actually, her name's Stephanie, whose mother, Susie, uh, died now about a year, a year and a half ago. And in the course of our conversation, as Stephanie was talking, she shared with me and she's sort of narrating the uh, the day when she came back to her living room where her mother had been receiving her hospice care, mm-hmm. when she came back to her living room after she'd been called uh, back home because her mother had died. And she ran to her mother, her mother's body there and grabbed her mother. And she says, I was holding her. I was holding this waxy skin, this totally lifeless body. And I just knew that she wasn't there, she's not here. And what she was describing was basically how everything in that room was how it had been when she left not two hours earlier. But now that she had returned and she even is holding this body that she loved, her mother's body, she also is feeling the absence of her mother in this body, by holding this body. And this is a paradox, like an utter paradox. And it's it's the point of the tragedy and the beginning of our longing that that body which through which and with which and by which her mother had loved her from her own birth, like from Stephanie's own birth, which nourished Stephanie, which her Stephanie came to love in her mother. She loved her mother in and through this body. That very body became the point of separation from her mother. And so... That is that's a way of seeing in this real experience as Stephanie was narrating this something of what I was trying to just describe in in this last little bit that I was talking about right. about you know what it means to be a human being and what death is uh, we feel it we touch it we don't always know how to think about it or make sense of it and so we want to I want to try and bring together these uh, experiences with. Uh, some sort of lighting from our theological tradition to try and understand what it is we experience and to experience again what it is that we're trying to profess.
0: You used the term during that story, the absence of presence, mm-hmm. and how how visceral that was for her. Uh, you know, I grew up in a Protestant tradition, and uh, one of the phrases that, that was bandied about it was a quote that got brought up periodically and we we felt super spiritual for saying it (laughs) was, um, I'm, I'm not a, a human person struggling with a eternal uh, experience. I'm, I'm a, or or with my, with my spiritual life, I'm a spiritual person struggling with my human life. And Uh, you go to great lengths without even addressing that specific quote to show that the true Christian anthropology is that we are both together and that uh, that we can't be fully who fully us Mm -hmm. without being both body and spirit that just, and and this chapter with Stephanie is where you kind of bring that out, that just the body uh, is not enough, but also just that communion with the, with the person still with the, with the spirit, there's still something that we feel that's missing because it's, the, both the absence of presence and the presence of absence yes. all happening there at that same time, that we we don't have the complete person without both parts.
1: No, that's quite right. And I think Stephanie, among others that I talked to, and even in reflecting on some of my own experiences, we can see that our pain, if we actually are are willing to touch our pain and to face it, our pain instructs us in this, that for Stephanie, it was the pain of desire, of wanting her mother, of wanting to hold her mother, of wanting her mother to be able to kiss her, to, to speak to her, to embrace her. It was feeling that I don't just want this sort of life that was there within my mother that's now gone. I don't just want that. And I clearly don't just want this body because this body by itself is not my mother. I feel it. I touch it, she's saying. I want it all. I want the union of that which animated her and this body together. And I think we have probably become culturally neglectful of that. Mm -hmm. Like at a moment like this, and she has remarkable capacity for reflection herself, Stephanie. At a moment like this, you feel what you desire. You feel what ought to be right. But we have all kinds of ways of Deceiving ourselves as to what we want. I want to get out of this body. We say right. about ourselves. I want to I regret this body I want to change what's within myself. I want this that the other thing and in some ways It's all an orchestrated There's all kinds of ways of orchestrating a denial of the wholeness of what it means for each of us to be a human being And for those that we love or maybe we don't love to also be <laughs> whole human beings you know, I
0: I see this also in this you know, part, part of the other of my upbringing. And I don't know if this also was shared with people who are cradle Catholics, but as a growing up a Protestant, there was this sense of, well, I'm going to get a glorified body when I die. And the thought of glorified body is that, you know, God's going to create a new one. And that I, you know, any, any defects that I have in this one, uh, I'm not going to have to mess with. I don't have to worry about taking care of this body because God's going to take care of me at the end. Uh, but the, of course the theology says that this body right here is the one that's going to be resurrected. This is the one that I'm going to have uh, when we get to the afterlife, when when we get to the, the final day in the resurrection.
1: Yeah, God's grace and generosity is far greater than we would have expected, I think. That it would be easier, I think, to just create something totally new. But God does something more magnificent. He remembers. He puts back together and recalls Mm -hmm. that which was. That is to say, this life, me, myself, this history, these relationships, everything that's gone in and through uh, this body, through which I've experienced all things, by which I've learned all things, all of the love, all of the hurt has come in and through this body. That's the experience, my experience in the world. And... To replace that would be to kind of negate and validate that life here. But God is more faithful. And in this way, both more conservative, he holds, and more liberal. He gives even more lavishly. He brings back that life which was and brings us into the perfection of what that life is called to be, what he seeks for us to be. And that's a very brief way of kind of introducing the glorified body, the glorified Mm -hmm. resurrected body, that it will be me, you, but not as we have been, fully healed, fully capacitated, fully capable of the love that we're called to, of the uh, activity and the sort of sensitivity that we don't yet have, that at times we might glimpse, but we can't quite capture. So there's a... I suppose there's this remarkable discipline if we could speak of such thing on God's part, a divine discipline, the discipline of remaining true and faithful to who each of his creatures is and perfecting and glorifying that particular creature. That's a call and a demand for each of us to hold our bodies, our lives, each other's bodies, each other's lives with unceasing regard and respect bordering on reverence even because this is the life the body the soul that God will perfect in the end
0: this last thought before we move on to the more full idea of communion of saints okay um there was this trend in the 90s and 2000s perhaps even continuing today to say, when I die, I don't want, I don't want a somber thing. I don't want to, I want to have a celebration of life. Right. And so we go to this service and it's, it's all, all about look at all of the things this person did in their life and, and almost a rejection of, uh, of grief and saying, I don't want you to be sad. You'll make me uncomfortable if you're sad when I'm gone. I want you to have a party. Uh, and yet there, you're talking about this grief is a real and necessary thing to wrestle with and grapple with before we can get to that place of understanding and practicing the communion of saints.
1: Mm. Yeah. What I, I learned this from the essayist and undertaker, Thomas Lynch, um, who we have gotten to know a little bit uh, and talked to. He says, we deal with death by dealing with the dead. Mm -hmm. So the idea is, the idea of death remains in some ways foreign to us unless we actually deal with the dead. And he makes a number of various observations and reflections on these, like about these sort of celebrations of life that you're talking about, that they become these, as he put it, bodiless obsequies that... Everybody is invited except the dead guy to this party, you know, but the dead body, what Stephanie was holding there in her living room, her mother's dead body is in fact, I think what Thomas Lynch is saying, our confrontation with the reality of death. And we ought to allow ourselves to feel the pain of that separation, to touch the source of our grief which doesn't mean that we have to therefore cancel out any, you know, hints of joy, laughter, mirth. Those who have mourned well know that those often come together, the joy and the lamentation. And in fact, to shut off the, the lamentation also means in some ways to shut off some capacity for the joy and vice versa. All of this, I think, is just a call to a more robust and full human experience, if you will. And, you know, to your your question, your observation about these um, celebrations of life, there are different ways, of course, to mourn. But one thing that seems to be required is to really, for those of us who remain, to, in whatever way is appropriate or available, to really touch the reality of the death of this person. And that can, when possible, mean encountering this dead body, the body of my beloved one, of the one who remember. Uh, If that's not possible, there are other ways to confront that reality really materially, um, but therefore also, like I'm saying, to allow ourselves the fullness of the human experience as well.
0: So you start off in this book unpacking what it means to be human, body-soul, unity combination, and then pointing out the separation that occurs at death for that for that individual, for that person, but also for those of us in communion with that person, you go into talking about Christ embodying, uh, being mm-hmm. incarnated and living out mm-hmm. that same, identifying with us in that same way.
1: Kind of step by step, step into by step toward death and from death. Yep.
0: So now we are confronting death. We're confronting our own grief and our own desire. How does that find a practice? for us recognizing that we are still in some form of communion with the whole church. How does that find uh, manifestation or practice in a, in a physical or or rather not a physical communion of saints?
1: So everything that you just very, Successfully and succinctly summarized, I think takes us to like page twenty-five or thirty or something like that. <laughs> right. Book, right, you know. So it happens fairly quickly. Not like we're we're trying to just give like a cursory glance at it. I tried to provide as much as we can, some some good depth and and biblical reflection. Um, but you know, the second part of your question there is 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 really, I think, the whole point of what we're trying to do. So what's the so what if we can grow in the understanding of death and the belief in the incarnation through the Paschal mystery, what does this mean for the practice of our faith and for our lives in the world? So how do we, how do we move that into these um, rituals, to these cultural expressions, to what we might do? What I try to bring forth as uh, further points of reflection, but also I would say as um, pastoral suggestions and priorities, Are the ways in which these exercises of these practices of exercising communion with our beloved dead is also a rehearsal for the uh, beatific life of the communion of saints. And that sounds like it's a spiritual kind of intention, you know, just about intention, but it happens in and through the stuff that we do with our bodies, the stuff that we do day after day. So translating what we believe into practice is the, the whole point of this, I think, belief becoming flesh. What might some of those, pra- maybe we're jumping a little bit too far ahead, but like what might some of those practices be? Well, I bring forward, you know, again, starting sometimes with stories and sometimes reflecting on the significance of what's going on in these practices, for example, Dorothy Day, Had a regular practice of taking the names of people she knew personally who had died and writing those names in her daily prayer book. And she would spend time regularly, day by day, week by week, reading over these names and offering prayers for them. And as she says, as she got older, this took more time. She knew more people who died, right? And as she got older, more of her contemporaries died. But what she was doing in her exercise of daily prayer, praying the liturgy of the hours, offering her morning and evening prayer, was making that uh, ritual, that daily ritual, into an exercise of communion for the sake of the beloved, of the faithful departed, of those who would otherwise perhaps been forgotten by people here. Um, she was changing and offering her own heart slowly, you know, subtly, kind of crankily at times, towards being a place of holding these people in communion. Now, I learned about that because one of my uh, friends and mentors told me that he started doing this based on what he learned from Dorothy Day. And it changes his time and his practice. It becomes something that's uh, ritual, even routine, not in the sense of mindless, but in the sense of it's written right into my daily and weekly life. We're in the month, you know, as we're talking, we're at the beginning of the month of November. November. Uh, beautifully gives us this opportunity in the church to uh, remember, recall our beloved dead, our faithful departed. Oftentimes, though, what happens in November, we kind of reserve it to November, like this is the time that we do that. Right. I'd like to think about this season of the year, liturgical observance, as the source of a renewal of practice for the rest of the year. What can I commit to for the rest of the year? How do I take what we do in November and move this a little bit more into the regular rhythm of my life, of our parish community's life, of our family's life? That's the way in which this belief in the communion of saints and our communion with our beloved dead moves from uh, idea or profession into flesh and blood into practice.
0: Mm -hmm. We've just finished up the first week of, of November. The interview? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> finish up the first week of, of November in that octave of, of all saints, mm-hmm. we have this opportunity to go to the few, to the, the, the cemeteries and pray for the repose of the souls of the faithful departed uh, and, and gain for them a plenary indulgence. Uh, and I, I'm intrigued by that physicality because this brings back that body, soul unity, that there's something about being, mm near our beloved dead, uh, that, that brings us closer to them, even though we at that place experience the separation.
1: Mm. Yeah. And I, I love, I like what you point out there that, you know, we do something, we go there. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where, you know, people start to get a little bit, uh, sort of cautious or unsure because it starts to sound at least to some like superstition like you do this and there will be this result from it right like right. this soul will spring from purgatory this amount of time there's a calculation and the the worst the sort of the worst types of reflection on these sort of practices lead to that right but the deeper understanding i think and the more beautiful truth in this is that as we do these things and we offer our time, our sacrifices, our charity, and I mean real works of charity, almsgiving, for the sake of our beloved dead, for the souls in purgatory, we're also making a statement with our lives and our bodies about what salvation actually is. It isn't just the satisfaction for that soul, that person that has died. It isn't just about my own well-being, like this is what it means to be a good Christian or something like that, like I'm, a, I'm attaining merit for myself. I think what we're doing is we're actually making, with our practice, the point and the proclamation, what we're doing with that point point in that practice is we're making the proclamation that my good is tied up with your good. That what is good for you should have a bearing on me. And that is already in it's already the seed of our hope for heavenly be for heavenly beatitude for salvation. That salvation is always social. It's what we share together. It's not just about my good and not just about your good, but it's about the good that we come to share together in Christ. So that sounds like a very you know, a very distant place from, you know, just making that trip to the local cemetery, taking 45 minutes and offering a prayer or some kind of sacrificial offering. But that's the whole difference between intention and action, right? Like actually doing something based on what we would hope for, or maybe we, we slowly walk ourselves into the understanding of what we hope for by this practice that we do over and over again. So I almost couldn't imagine myself as anything other than the person who goes to this gravesite for my departed aunt, for my friend who died early, etc. Yeah,
0: we're talking today with Dr. Leonardo Delorenzo, director of undergraduate studies in the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. The new book is part of the Engaging Catholicism series. Our faithful departed where they are and why it matters as we're talking here about the communion of the saints, this belief we have and how we live that out in practice. There's much more to this conversation right after this break, so don't go anywhere. You're listening to Outside the Walls with Tia. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. We're talking today with Dr. Leonard DeLorenzo, who is the Director of Undergraduate Studies at the McGrath Institute for Church Life. Uh, I can't tell you how much I love the McGrath Institute. Specifically, uh, they do just tons of work for the good of the church. They've got uh, seminars and and uh, YouTube videos on on the saints and how to live out our life in in Christ. Uh, they've got this new series uh, together with the. Ave Maria Press called "Engaging Catholicism." They've got a number of volumes here: uh, one on the Eucharist by Dr. Timothy O'Malley, uh, one on creation and science. Uh, this engage this "Our Faithful Departed" by Dr. Leonard Delorenzo, and many more. Uh, you can find those over at Ave Maria Press. Uh, you can also go to the Church Life Journal, which has just tons of fantastic articles you could read for days churchlifejournal.nd.edu. dr DeLorenzo, thanks for being with us today my pleasure so we were we ended the last segment talking about that practice of going to the cemetery and praying for our faithful departed and one of the things that i don't think we've mentioned yet that i think is important for us as we do that yes during the octave but hopefully beyond that as well is to remind ourselves of our connection, that we are not isolated individuals, but that we are part of a communion and the communion of saints has every bit as much to do with, uh, with the saints and and the Holy souls in purgatory, depending on us as it does our connection to them. You know, we often think of, well, communion of saints means I can ask St. Anthony to help me find my car keys (laughs) and less about what it means for us all to be interconnected in Christ.
1: Hmm. No, that's exactly right. I think um, the saints are our first teachers, perhaps, or our perpetual teachers in that lesson that we always have to learn, that when we really contemplate the saints and we come to, you know, take a, a particular an individual state, saint and really give our attention over to them, we might study them, their lives, their writings, we might come to learn about their prayer and maybe even practice their prayers, our own prayer, or we observe their ways of charity. And the best way to learn about those ways of charity is then to follow them in those ways of charity. What we come to see is this this human creature just like us, who has been converted more and more and more into the truly divine way, the incarnate way, which is to move towards those who are suffering, which is to take the good of others as your own good, which means to make the sacrifices of love that were first of all made for you, and now coming to participate in that sacrifice by making those sacrifices for others, and in the end, actually coming to delight in that, Mm -hmm. coming to delight in bringing others into the fullness of health, of hoping for and with others. I think our imagination about the communion of saints now, of those holy men and women who already enjoy the company of our Lord in beatitude, Our imagination about that has become quite impoverished. Like if we really allowed our imaginations to be renewed, we would be, I think, stunned to find that the saints do not just rest in the sweet embrace of the Lord. In fact, what they do is they hasten with him in mercy toward us. That's what it means for a saint to be a saint now to the end of time is to be fully given over to the mission of mercy that our lord undertakes as his own mission to the end of time so for us to look up even to a, a saint anthony like you said or saint therese of Lisieux, or any of these saints for us to look up to them if we really were able to see them we would see them bending down towards us with their prayers hastening towards us with mercy It's like it's an unfair advantage, like all of heaven is tilted against us, conspiring against us for our good. And I think we would do well to be sort of stunned by that more than we are, Mm -hmm. to recognize this incredible concern and charity that's coming toward us and willing us towards the good.
0: As a convert, there are certain phrases which I hear regularly Mm -hmm. that I don't feel like I've fully grasped. Uh, and around the communion of saints is is one of those areas, talking about uh, the the saints sought me out or I've been befriended by these saints or I have a friend in this saint. But I recently, uh, about this time last year, went to Rome. Mm. And one of the things that I noticed there in the churches of Rome is that the practice of the communion of saints is much more visceral than it is here. So you would go into a church and there would be a, a glass uh, Section inside of it would be uh, the either a statue of in repose or the actual body of a saint. Yeah. Um. And inside of that, you know, here you might see something like that. I've been to Philadelphia. There's a um Saint Saint John Neumann is there uh-huh. in, in repose behind glass. But what I saw in Rome that I didn't see here is that people had taken notes and folded them up and shoved mm-hmm. them between the glass to get it as close to the saint as possible with those desires and those prayers. Mm. Um, And again, that's something I don't fully understand, but I see it in practice and recognize it as the communion of saints. Mm. But the other difficulty I have, so maybe address that, but the other difficulty that perhaps you can help me and and others overcome is marrying uh, my understanding of what it means to have this communion of saints to those who are canonized or blessed or declared venerable that i am looking to to model my life after and that communion of the saints that connects me to my specific loved ones who the church doesn't mention in her calendar and to to understand how those two practices of the communion of saints are united in some way as just one communion of saints and not two different divergent practices
1: mm. Anything else
0: that'll, that'll do. Is, is that, is that not enough?
1: <laughs> Are you not entertained? Yeah. No, that's great. You know what you're talking about in terms of being in Rome and seeing these, sometimes there's the ex photo offerings or like you're saying, like trying to get as close as they can, people getting as close as they can to the relics of the saints be, wanting to be there. I mean, many of us know this, That this is like a very ancient practice. Like people wanted to be close to the saints and churches built up around the, the burial places of the saints. And we could again fall into thinking of like the superstition of that. Like, gosh, if I could just be there, right? That's a place that's sort of supercharged with whatever it might be, grace or favor or whatever. But I, you know, one of the ways I understand this is we want to be close to the saints, like people who are, especially those who are desperate, which is really kind of like the base level of faith, right? Like touching on your own desperation. Those who are desperate, reaching out for something, want to be close to the saints because here in this place, in this body, in this human life, the promises of our Lord came to fruition, right? That the gospel isn't doesn't ever just remain above us. It actually comes, this good news, to change lives. That the fruit of his sacrifice, of his resurrection, has been born out here. And I think that we ought to follow that instinct to want to be near. Or if we don't have that instinct, we should marvel at those who do and maybe allow them to to draw us a little bit closer. There's something about wanting to be near to that which the Lord has touched, and the saints are those whom the Lord has touched thoroughly, has Mm -hmm. redeemed and renewed. Now, back to to the second thing about uh, the connection between uh, our veneration of the saints and, let's say, our regard for our faithful departed. Where to begin? I mean, in some ways, this is what I'm trying to, to... flesh out in this entire book, in, both in the theological work and the renewal of practice. But I might just say this, that I think there's a great deal of instruction just in these two feasts that come at the beginning of November that don't just happen to be placed next to each other because we got to put them somewhere. I think there's a real <laughs> logic in the in the liturgical progression here. That on the solemnity of all saints, and and I draw this out like in some of the writing about the prayer over the offerings, you know that mm-hmm. which we bring to the altar, which is eventually consecrated. The prayer that's said over those offerings as the liturgy of the Eucharist begins on the feast or on the solemnity of all saints, and I'm just doing this from memory now. Uh, the prayer is that we who make this, who give these gifts to be blessed, broken, shared, given back to us as the body and blood of our Lord, we pray that we may experience the concern of the saints for our salvation. That is a bizarre thing to think about that. Like, we're not praying for them for their good, because we've already, we believe already that they enjoy the fullness of good, of the good, right? They're already in communion with the Lord. So what are we praying for? that we may experience their concern for our salvation. Which also means their concern for our salvation is in itself healing. If we could feel that, if we could experience it, if we could receive it, it's part of what heals us. The concern of others for us, of these holy men and women, that they may draw close to us, that we might touch them. On the next day, though, we don't pray in that same way on the commemoration of uh, for all souls what do we pray we pray that those whom we recall in this mass for whom we offer this sacrifice that they may be hastened into the glory of our lord that they that they may be lifted up but as we pray that let's think about this we're praying that they enjoy what the saints enjoy and to pray for that also means there's a little circularity here we're praying that they may be hastened into that full freedom of being wholly concerned with our salvation. Hmm. That the perfection of our faithful departed will be that they become fully conformed to the charity of the Lord and share in that charity with all the saints, which means a charity that they'll share with us too. So as we offer our prayers and our sacrifices and our charitable works for the sake and the memory of our faithful departed, we're also offering that so that they can be freed to be fully concerned with us. Again, I try to pull this out a number of times and to try and paint this picture uh, with as many lines as I can, that salvation in the Christian uh, for Christians is only ever social. We're only saved together and for and with one another in the Lord. And I think we're always coming up against the residual, the residual sort of inclination towards individualism when we do that. It doesn't mean that I'm a, I'm just like dissolved into the sea of like complete being with others. It means that I am fully myself only in and within for those others who are members of the body of Christ. So yeah. I hope that captures some of what you were asking for as best I could.
0: Here in the epilogue, you give us a few different ways that we can begin to renew these practices and fully live out what it means to to believe in the communion of saints. Yeah. You talk about prayer, uh-huh. uh, but, but specifically you talk about returning to mourning. Um, mm. And perhaps this comes back to that idea of uh, don't mourn for me, just give me a celebration of life. Well, mm. How does our participation in mourning help us to recover this belief?
1: There in particular, I'm talking about the sort of cultural uh, rituals of mourning, which have more or less been lost in our modern Western world, in, in for the most part. Like, there are certain places where these rituals remain more or less intact. But for those who have grieved the loss of loved ones who don't quite know what to do with themselves, like, what do I do next? Like, we've gotten through the funeral, but now the next week, and the next month, and for the next year. And I think we ourselves have been, we've come across a certain cultural poverty, like each of us is disadvantaged because we don't have these communal practices that we fall back on. Like for this period of time, six months, for example, for a year, this is what it means to mourn. And there will be these occasions that we come together to do this work of mourning together. And because you have done it with others when they were mourning, now when it is your turn to, when, when grief comes for you, and it's not your voluntary grief, like you're, no, you're not making the choice to grieve with others, to mourn with others, it's that which is inflicted upon you because it's your loved one. You fall back on, there's some kind of familiarity in these rituals that we've practiced over and over again in community. There's that's that's item. part of what I'm pulling out there. And I think, you know, we ought to think about that in our parishes and mm-hmm. practices for our families, because as we practice those regularly, especially with and for those who are mourning the loss of loved ones who may not have been our loved ones, we're also practicing and developing, if you will, the muscle memory that we'll need when grief comes for us and we haven't we haven't sought it out, when it's our loved ones that have mm-hmm. died
0: and there is such an isolation mm. when when we have this absence of corporate mourning yeah. there is such an isolation that comes when you have lost someone not only do i not, not know what to do because there's no script but now i have i feel like i have to do it completely alone yes. and and that that i think magnifies the amount of a destructive grief uh, that you experience because when you are grieving with others there are people to hold you up and to uh to help you not sink into the abyss of of losing all of your daily activities and and yeah. basically just dissolving into that grief right rather than letting the grief do its work yeah uh, and and so i i wonder what are some of the ways that i can support the person who's going through grief so that they don't feel isolated because i think we're, we're grief is taboo because we don't want to say the wrong thing we don't want to do yes. the wrong thing and there's yes. there's no because there's no script i'm as a supporter also at a loss i don't want to cause more damage yeah uh but i also need to be able to support those people so that so that we can build up together this corporate memory.
1: Yeah. So what to, are you asking what to do then? Yeah, it's kind of,
0: it's a catch 22. How Mm. do we get started in rebuilding those practices when there is no script for those practices?
1: Well, and I, I'd love to see us each take this as our, you know, sort of personal responsibility for the sake of others, but I'd maybe even more like to see this, and this is part of why I wrote this book to propose this and to to start doing some of the work to help help this take flesh in especially our parishes as the place places certainly that provide you know uh, grief ministry and uh, offer the funerals and give the place for people to gather and to pray and to offer the mass but also to find the ways in which not on just special occasions but as a regular practice. We uh, join together with those who are mourning for, let's say, this year, who have lost someone this year. Maybe it's every month, right? And as part of that, maybe it is a prayer service or a mass, but it's also a time of conversation. That sounds a little bit cheap, but it's a a chance to kind of like encounter one another and listen to one another um, and to share time with one another. And this is why we're doing it, because we're continuing to mourn these people who have died this year, these members of your family, not mine, your family, and I'm here for you. Mm-hmm. So what to do on the personal level, and that that's not, I don't think that's the whole solution here, I'm just trying to like, kind of lift up a few things as we're talking here, TL, but um, I feel that that challenge of, you know, so what to do when it's somebody we know who's grieving, and we don't wanna say the wrong thing, we don't wanna make it worse, but I think those of us who have grieved the loss of loved ones, we, I think most of us, though we may react viscerally at times, and though it may, sometimes people may sort of make us feel the wound a little bit more deeply. I think the worst wound that we feel is when we're left alone with it. And I think there is a little bit of courage of continuing to reach out. But I, I have found, and I think many others have found that the, that effort is never truly wasted. Like to know that somebody else is here with me, feeling this with me, offering their prayers, doing something. But I also think, like, not just to kind of like spontaneously uh, make up things to do as we go along, but what are the things we go back to? You know what? Like every month, I want to go with you to your mother's grave and offer a rosary with you there, or just go with you there and let you. Uh, offer your prayers. I can stand back, but I want to go with you. I want to take, I want to take you there. Um, Or what if we do this every month as this work of mercy for, you know, the poor in our community? I want to do that. Let's do that together. And we'll offer this work for the sake of your, your mother. Right. I think those kind of things, regular type of things are what build up a culture of communion in one of the areas of our life where communion has perhaps been most lacking. And that is for the sake of those who are grieving and in separation from our loved ones who have gone before us.
0: We've been talking today with Dr. Leonard DeLorenzo. The book is on Ave Maria Press, part of the Engaging Catholicism series. It's called Our Faithful Departed, Where They Are and Why It Matters. Dr. DeLorenzo, thanks for
1: being with us today. Oh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: If you missed any part of my conversation with Dr. Leonard DeLorenzo, or you want to go back and listen to it again and share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. In addition to these archives of these broadcast segments, we also have a whole slew of unbroadcast segments that were created specifically for those who support the show through Patreon. Our Patreon support community helps keep us on the air and in gratitude, we record an extra segment each and every week. While you're at OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link and look through some of those older segments and consider whether or not you might want to become a part of that community and get those segments as they come out. Now, Let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from scripture and church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read scripture in light of church teaching, putting the magisterium at your fingertips by linking scripture to the catechism, to the fathers and doctors of the church, magisterial documents, biblical commentaries, original language research, and so much more. You can learn more at verbum.com. Our reading from scripture comes from the Gospel of Luke, and we've heard this a couple of times recently in the Mass. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second, and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels." and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. That reading comes from the Gospel of Luke. Jesus answers them that God is the God of living and not the God of the dead, for all are alive to him. And so just as that's foundational to answer that question for the Sadducees, that's also foundational for us looking at the communion of saints, that death that we face today is not part of God's design. As God designed the created world before the fall, there was this ongoing perpetual communion. And so, too, through the redemption that we have received, this continues to be God's plan for an ongoing communion. Communion not only with, with him, but also with all of those who are called by his name. Our reading from church history comes from the Second Vatican Council, Lumen Gentium, Numbers 49 and 50. Until the Lord shall come in his majesty and all the angels with him, and death being destroyed, all things are subject to him. Some of his disciples are exiles on earth. Some, having died, are purified. And others are in glory, beholding clearly God himself, triune and one, as he is. But all, in various ways and degrees, are in communion in the same charity of God and neighbor. And all sing the same hymn of glory to our God, For all who are in Christ, having his Spirit, form one church and cleave together in him. Therefore, the union of wayfarers with the brethren who have gone to sleep in the peace of Christ is not in the least weakened or interrupted, but on the contrary, according to the perpetual faith of the Church, is strengthened by communication of spiritual goods." For by reason of the fact that those in heaven are more closely united with Christ, they establish the whole church more firmly in holiness, lend nobility to the worship which the church offers to God here on earth, and in many ways contribute to its greater edification. For after they have been received into their heavenly home and are present to the Lord, through him and with him and in him, they do not cease to intercede with the Father for us, showing forth the merits which they won on earth through the one mediator between God and man, serving God in all things and filling up in their flesh those things which are lacking of the sufferings of Christ for his body, which is the church. Thus, by their brotherly interest, our weakness is greatly strengthened." Fully conscious of this communion of the whole mystical body of Jesus Christ, the Pilgrim Church from the very first ages of the Christian religion has cultivated with great piety the memory of the dead. And because it is a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead that they may be loosed from their sins, it also offers suffrages for them. The Church has always believed that the apostles and Christ's martyrs who had given the supreme witness of faith and charity by the shedding of their blood, are closely joined with us in Christ, and she has always venerated them with special devotion, together with the Blessed Virgin Mary and the holy angels. The Church has piously implored the aid of their intercessions, To these were soon added, also those who had more closely imitated Christ's virginity and poverty, and finally others whom the outstanding practice of the Christian virtue and the divine charisms recommended to the pious devotion and imitation of the faithful. When we look at the lives of those who have faithfully followed Christ, we are inspired with a new reason for seeking the city that is to come. And at the same time, we are shown a most safe path by which among the vicissitudes of this world— in keeping with the state and life and condition proper to each of us, we will be able to arrive at a perfect union with Christ, that is, perfect holiness. In the lives of those who, sharing in our humanity, are however more perfectly transformed under the image of Christ, God vividly manifests His presence and His face to men. He speaks to us in them and gives us a sign of His kingdom, to which we are strongly drawn, having so great a cloud of witnesses over us and such a witness to the truth of the gospel. That reading comes from Lumen Gentium. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today's show was brought to you uh, by Brandy Carey and all of those who support this, the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link, and join their numbers Come join the ongoing conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.